We're beginning a series today, just on these last few weeks before the Easter season, where we're together going to make a turn toward the cross and the resurrection. And in our, in our yearly church calendar, you know, there's some really important Sundays ahead of us, Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So we're going to um, just walk together toward the cross as a church. So when we're doing our devotions together, we're in the Word um, during the week. We want to collectively be in the Gospel of Matthew because that's where we'll be in the text. So if you already do a lot of Bible reading, that's great. If you don't, um, jump into Matthew, Matthew 26 through 28 over these next few weeks so that we can be in the Gospel together as a church. And that's where we'll be today, Matthew 26, and really a beautiful story. It's already been spoken to during the worship time, and the song's even kind of preparing us for this text. Um, But before we turn to it, I want to talk about a concept we're all familiar with. It's this concept of a fine line. There's a fine line that divides um, two things that are very different, but a fine line sits between them. And... Because of the nuance of life, we live on those fine lines. So, you know, there's a fine line between humor and sarcasm, right? So there's something that can be funny, but all of a sudden it's sarcastic and it has this like layer of evil to it or attack or belittling. Um, There's a fine line between laughing and crying, and probably many of us have been just laughing hysterically, and then the next thing we know, we're crying, or we're crying, and we're not sure why. And somewhere in there, we cross this fine line between laughing and crying. There's a fine line between being informed and obsessed. You can just watch it in your own life. Wherever you like information, it, it can quickly become an obsession of pride because we. We know every little detail about this or that. Um, There's a fine line between um, coffee and the the temperature of coffee. There's a fine line between the degrees. Um, Coffee can be too hot or it can just be the right level of hotness. And we all have our particular degrees of what that is. But it's a very fine line there. And... um, there is a, a comedian and actor from the 50s, Oscar Levant, and he's famous for saying this, that there is a fine line between genius and insanity, and I have erased this line. <laughs> so we say fine line because there's this nuance, um, and we all do it. When I was in high school, um, I met my wife Libby, and we were, we were friends from like 10th, 11th grade. Well, in 12th grade... We started hanging out, and we went bowling. We went to McDonald's. I mean, it was high-level, you know, friendship. And um, our youth group leaders pulled us aside, and they said, what's going on? We see something. What's going on here? And we were like, no, 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 no. We're just friends. And um, so we were living on that fine line between friendship and something more, and maybe even, like, lying to ourselves in the process of something that would grow, you know, eventually into love. So we live in these, in these places. 
And um, today in the text, what one group sees as uh, wasteful, extravagant, um, way, way overboard, um, Jesus sees as something beautiful and intentional and purposeful and significant. And there's such a fine line between the two in the text that certain groups get it wrong and one person gets it right. So that's what we'll be looking at today is how did this person, how did she get it right? How did she get this fine line of adoration and worship? How did she get it right? So we're in Matthew 26. I'll be reading it for us. And you can listen as we take this story in together. Um, Allow me to pray for us before we enter into the word. Lord, we pause now and just with a recognition that we need you. And I pray, Lord, that your word becomes a lamp for us today. That it opens up to each one here. um, Something that they need to be reminded of. And that needs light shed upon it. That they need enlightenment on what's going on in their life. And I pray that the text that we have today, Lord, and and the words around it, that it would um, just be a lamp unto our feet, unto our path, and unto our place in life today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is Matthew 26, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Ah, but they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body... She has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. 
And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Matthew makes a pretty big transitional statement in that first verse. He says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, all these sayings, all these teachings, the gospel of Matthew is written with um, these big examples of Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus had just wrapped up um, some parables and some really large teachings about um, the sheep and the goats and, and how he would be recognized um, at the end, and how we would be recognized as followers of him. And he says, after all these sayings, um, he turns now to the present moment. And then what I want us to see, just as we just begin to look at the Gospel of Matthew, we enter into a narrative again, the storyline. But the urgency on this part of the storyline is really intense. I mean, it's the last days of Jesus' life. And the, the storytelling from this point on, the narrative, it just starts coming at you. So Matthew, he presents the characters um, and their focus in a very, um, I just read it, in a very compact set of verses. And we see just a focus of each one. And, and as we look at this text, I want you to think about what is the focus of, of these groups around Jesus. So first we see in the disciples They're focused on something good. I mean, they have questions. How do we care for the poor? But we'll see that their focus is not on Christ in the way that it should be. In fact, this is like the falling apart moment of the disciples. From here on out, it only gets worse for them. Um, It's it's in this little moment where they're asking like a good question but it's not the right question and the right time is indicative of, of what's about to happen with them. So, you know, in very, and just in the next um, episodes, they'll, they'll fall asleep as Jesus asks them to keep, keep watch. They'll pull their sword out at the wrong time. You know, the, you know, the greatest follower of Jesus, Peter, will deny even knowing Jesus in in moments. He'll deny his own identity as a follower of Christ. So the disciples, ironically, um, as a group, play an interesting role as Jesus walks toward the cross. They, they leave him in his greatest moment of need. And then you have the chief priests. In just you know a couple verses, we see that the chief priests were the the anointed ones of the people of God, and they were the ones to watch out for the Savior. And here they are plotting in the palace of the high priest to come and kill him by stealth. So their focus is on, you could say their focus is on the right person, but their motive is just evil and destruction and death. And it's ironic because they say, well, let's not stir it up. You know, like we don't want to stir up the people during Passover. Um, But I think it's ironic because here we are talking about the kingdom of God. And they could not squash the stirring up of the kingdom. And to this day, um, they were not able to, to squash what they had hoped to squash. And... And yet we see them, that's, their, that's the role they play here at the end. 
And then there's Judas. No one wants to be Judas in the story. If, you know, the kids play this at church, they, no, you know, <laughs> okay, you be Judas, you know. No one wants to take on that role because it's such a dark, I, I mean, the darkness in his life even has this total regret there at the end. And regrets, you know, guilt, it's not a good thing. And so, but he, G- Judas is focused on the wrong thing at the wrong time and he betrays um, Jesus. But there in the middle, we have this woman who we're going to look at uh, just that encounter and, and just see what we can learn from her focus this morning. The Gospel of John names her as Mary, the um, sister of Lazarus and Martha. So we believe that's who it is. But I think it's intentional that Matthew kind of leaves her unnamed, especially because of what he says at the end. So it's, she's not named, but what, what her focus is, is going to live on and be remembered to this day. And so that's what we see. So as we look at it, um, verse by verse, uh, 6 Jesus is at the house of Simon the leper. We don't know much about Simon the leper, except that apparently he was a leper, and apparently uh, Jesus went into his house. So it's likely that Jesus healed. Um, There were a lot of Simons in the Bible. See, if you were a Simon, you had to be distinguished by the trait that you carried. So this, this guy carried leprosy. So Jesus was in his home, at his table, sharing a meal with Simon the leper, other than that, he's a passive character. And um, in Bethany. And then uh, there they are. The disciples are there. And this woman comes in. She comes up to Jesus with an alabaster flask. She opens it and she anoints his head with oil. And then everyone just starts to get upset. And then Jesus comes to her defense. He says, no, actually, she's doing something beautiful. You're always going to have the poor among you. That's a response to what they had asked. But you're not always going to have me. In fact, she's prepared me for my burial. So he very quickly comes to her defense. And of all the characters in this story, um, she's the one that has the right focus at the right time, on the right person, on Christ. But let's talk a little bit about what all the fuss is about. I mean, why, why are they getting so furious, the word indignant? They, they're not just like, okay, we shouldn't do this. They are angry that she's doing this. I mean, they are furious that this would happen. Um, so what is happening? Anointing is um, not very common for us. I mean, at times we were asked to anoint someone who's sick because of the scripture in James. Um, But it's not in our general practice in daily life. And yet, at this time it was. So that's really important because anointing was a common practice in life. So this woman, you know, she is anointing Jesus as a sign of hospitality, as a sign of care, as a sign of honor. It was a dry and arid land and your skin got dry and this was a way to care for those that were important and had honor. So she's doing something caring, and in the process, she does something beautiful. I don't even know if we know to the full extent um, to what was happening within her, but she got it right, and that's the amazing part of the story. So um, 
not only was there a general practice of anointing, but it also had spiritual significance all through Scripture. Uh, king David, was, his head was anointed with oil. In Scripture, the word king is um, synonymous with the anointed one. So they would say the anointed one, the king. And it was a sign of God's favor. Uh, when Aaron, the great high priest who um, became the first high priest of the people, and his two sons were consecrated to the Lord, they were anointed with oil on their heads. And it was a sign of consecration that the Lord's favor and that they were set apart for him was upon them. So there's a significance to uh, just this anointing that's happened. There's a spiritual significance to it that um, really, I believe, Matthew wants us to pinpoint on this. He wants us to get this. And culturally, that's a little bit challenging for us. That's why I'm talking about it contextually for them. Because something that was in their daily practice also had spiritual significance. So much so that the word anoint in Hebrew is mashah, where we get the, the anointed one, Messiah. And then that carried over into the Greek, Christos, to anoint Christ, the anointed one. So it's Jesus, the Christ. You know, people sometimes get confused. Well, was that his last name? No, it was, it was a title that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And um, so this would have had linguistic significance for them. It would have had practical significance and spiritual significance from their storyline that you know, we sort of have to come around and try to get that. Um, but Matthew is being very precise with his words. And he wants us to get this. So if you are a Christian, that means you are a believer in Christ. You're a follower of Christ. But literally, it means that you're a little anointed one. You are anointed with the Holy Spirit. And you've been given the Holy Spirit to go on and do the works of Christ in the flesh. But, also, but not in the flesh, in the Spirit. But you are in the flesh. You are alive, and you're working amidst your flesh, but you are working out of the Spirit because you are anointed with the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. Even the, even the identification itself carries this idea. So um, something beautiful is happening here, and it's, it's, I'm just so amazed that um, everyone else missed it, and her focus was in the right timing at the right place. And this is significant um, because it gets into just what this means. Uh, She prepared Jesus for his burial, it says. Jesus said that. And um, again, during this time in history, if someone passed away, there was actually an urgency to get them buried, possibly on the same day. That was the goal. If it carried over to the next, it was uh, not as good. But um, so you can remember Jesus, uh, Jesus on the day he died. Joseph of Arimathea um, went to Pilate and begged for Jesus' body so they could bury him on that day. And this woman prepares Jesus for his burial before 
uh, he's dead. So it's a really uh, significant event. We were studying it with the elders this past week at the elders meeting, and one of the elders said, it's possible that this, the fragrance of this oil lingered to the cross. I mean, it's days away. And the Gospel John said the fragrance filled the room of the same account. And, and it's here at this moment that Jesus says, look, you will always have the poor among me, among you, but you will not always have me. So what is he saying? Is he, is he saying the poor are less important than him? I mean, I guess one could argue that. I don't think he's saying that. I think he's saying, look, my presence is precious. My revelation of my life is precious. This is the fourth time he's told his disciples that he's going to the cross. Now it's days away. And he said, this is it, guys. This is it. In two days, I'm going to the cross. And they just, they just fall, fall apart. And yet it's this woman who is just going about her life in a practical and thoughtful way. And she does this beautiful act of worship. So Jesus is precious. And it will only be in the absence of Christ that the disciples um, realize the weight of his presence. In fact, Jesus said to him, said to them that it's actually better if I go away. And it sounds odd, but this is a quote. It is for your own good that I am going, because unless I go, the helper, the spirit, uh, will not come to you. So Jesus' physical presence, his earthly teaching, and his the manifestation of his life that he took on our likeness, um, becoming like us unto death but without sin, this is for a limited time and purpose. Um, And his earthly ministry was bound, and it it was coming to a close, and he needed someone to prepare him and his body for burial. And it was this woman. Jesus is precious. Um, As we close today, I just want to give you three applications to this because I really think at the heart of this passage is what is your focus? Who are you focused on in life? And how does, what does that look like in your life? And it, it can be challenging because we have a lot of things where we, we are focused on. You know, we sang, my only delight is you. And yet how many other, how many other delights do we um, have in life? On a daily basis, we get distracted. But ult- I mean, I think when we sing that, ultimately what we're saying is our only delight in the ultimate sense is Jesus. Everything else eventually will fade away. And there are troubles and challenges to the path that we're on. But every so often, in a moment of time, we can get it right when it comes to worship. And that's what we see here. It's amazing. So these three things are, she did something beautiful. I think sometimes we, with worship, we, 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 we have a recognition that worship is beautiful, but we're more of like a button pusher or analytical or we're not a singer, and that's, that's fine. But worship is so much more than that. It, it's a focus on Christ. It's a focus of your giftings on Christ, your attention, 
your, um, your adoration, your love on him. And then you have to determine what that is. I mean, we are all called to sing as the church, but others have been gifted in that uh, more so than others. So you have to decide, how is my life going to live as a life of worship? So she did something beautiful. She did something significant. I think that uh, many of us don't think we have anything significant to offer to the Lord. We think we, you know, he has all he needs. He's God. Uh, he doesn't need me. Um, so we, we misinterpret that thought to say that we don't have anything of significance to bring. So the significance is bringing yourself to the Lord, not because he's incomplete, but because that's part of worship. And she got that. She did something significant. And lastly, she did something costly. Worship is costly. Not in a sense of achievement. I mean, we can't achieve the Lord by worshiping him. But scripture is clear. It says we must count the costs. And the Apostle Paul said, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ and knowing him and being known by him as Lord. He is my Christ, my Messiah. And um, as we close, those three ideas, I think, are, are good, good ways for you to evaluate your life in terms of worship. And again, we, we twist them because it is a fine line. There's a fine line between a worshiping life and a, a life that's just kind of there. And it's, it's, we live in the nuance of that. We fall in and out of maybe the, where God wants us on a daily basis. But, I mean, there's grace upon grace and mercy's new every day to find the Lord and his closeness. But... Um, but there is a, a beauty, a significance, and a cost. But we, we twist it. We say, worship is too beautiful for me. Um, but that's a lie. I mean, I was not the first one in this building. There were people that unlocked the doors, people that clicked buttons to turn systems on. There were, the music was already flowing when I walked into the building. Um, these are all beautiful acts of worship. They may not be recognized as such, but they are. Um, we think our contribution is insignificant. Do you think you, your contribution is insignificant? Um, I ran into someone walking in, and you know, there they were, uh, a father and a daughter serving in, in the kids' room. That's significant. Or we are unwilling to count the costs, you know? And I want to close just with something that's practical because I feel that this will just help, um, help invite you to consider your life as a life of worship. There's a card. Um, it'll be on the screen. We have plenty of these, so if you didn't get one, the ushers will be around to hand you one, or you can grab one on the way out. But... Um, I, this is a tool that I've modified the questions a little bit for us here today, but I'm part of a worship school um, in Atlanta called 10,000 Fathers, and I went to it as a student, and now I coach with that um, 
just one hour a week, but it really has shaped how I think about worship and also how I think about discipleship and how I think about life. So I'm trying to think of ways that I can just bring what I've learned um, through that school to you here today. And so I've modified this assessment tool that we use, which is assessment on your character and your what is your focus in life. And sometimes questions help us on the fine lines that we live on. Um, so that first column to the left is how does your character express itself upward? So you are not God. You are a created being in the image of God. And your life expresses to him um, who he is and who you are and how you think about that. And that's part of your worship. And then the character in, it's not an inward. It's more of a in the circle of who your trusted family, friends, the people that know you and the people you know, who knows you best, and then next best, that's kind of that circle, the, the character inward. Are you honest with anyone in your life? You know, where can you be yourself, and how do you express that character inward? This shows a lot about who we are in our, our life of worship. And then lastly, our character out. Um, how are you interacting with those in your circles that are the world and, and each has a set of questions. You can use this, just you know, stick it with your Bible. And as you're reading the Word and you want to consider your life, is your life worshiping God? These questions can help, help you discern where you are. So I'll just isolate that left column for today. Just as some questions for you to consider. Um, what are your fine lines you know, when it comes to worship and beauty and extravagance? You know, are you allowing yourself to bring beautiful things to the Lord? So here's some questions to um, get you thinking about that. Um, Do I make enough space for prayer? You know? Do I pursue intimacy with Jesus? This This story is a great example that, okay, there's group dynamics, and then there's disciples, and then there's uh, personal. And we see a personal expression of worship here in this text today. We see an intimacy of drawing close to Jesus. Um, what is on your heart for intercession? Am I living in the power of the Spirit? Am I seeing personal revival Do I still feel joy? Am I living in a state of peace? Am I afraid or nervous? Am I obedient to God's prompting? Do I delight in his word? You can't take all these questions, but maybe there's one that sort of pricks you or maybe it spurs another question that you need to ask yourself in relation to your life as a life of worship. So as we close today, I want to challenge you to, even over the next few weeks as we celebrate Good Friday, Easter, um, walk toward the cross as as an expression 
of worship in your life. What does that mean? Of course, yeah, you'll be here on Sunday, you'll sing, that's great. But what does it mean for your life to express itself to God, to your family, friends, and then to the world that you are drawing near to God and who he is? And you love him and he's beautiful in your life. And I believe that this is how the world will know that through all these unique interactions that we have, expressing a life of worship is, is how the world is changed. So I want to encourage you just to take that card. If you didn't get one, you can grab one on the way out and may it be an encouragement to you along with your study of the word. Um, you can stand and we'll do a closing prayer as we go. Father, we come to you this morning uh, just with a recognition that you are beautiful. Lord, you are significant, so um, you're the most significant thing. So our response to you is significant as a result of that, just because of the weight of your significance. And um, Lord, you're, you're more costly than gold or silver. And even in our drawing toward you, there are costs, there are Losses that we need to let go of because of uh, the incomparable weight of you and your glory that is, is not comparable. It's not even comparable to the coins that we have. Lord, so we just lift up this congregation, this body, um, our sisters in Wilmington as they'll continue to worship this morning, brothers and sisters there. Lord, that, um, that we would be a worshiping church and bring you glory and honor, both collectively and individually, Lord. And if there's someone here that just needs a special uh, reminder of that you love them, that you're for them, I pray that it would come you know, through an interaction or a word um, or a comment, even from your word, Lord, that you would enlighten us and light our path. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.